137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? This is Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. And tonight's episode, we've got a little bit of everything for everybody, I think. Uh, Episode 34 is going to be chock full of all sorts of weird stuff. Like, for instance, the Great War nobody heard about where a bunch of cranes ate a bunch of pygmies. (laughs) Alien mummies found in Peru. And so, so much more. So how's everybody been? Do, do you want me? (laughs) I've been all right. You know. Good. I have been... Shit. (laughs) Well, I forgot to mention last time we recorded, because I think it was before, uh, Shayla and I just celebrated our 11th anniversary, and she got me a matching set of Bigfoot socks and Bigfoot boxers. Oh, you're all Bigfoot Mm -hmm. out. Just like Rob Lowe. Uh, Well, with that, should we go ahead and jump into the news? (laughs) Folks, if you haven't heard, Rob Lowe and the Sons are going to start hunting Bigfoot in a brand new TV show called The Low Files on A&E. And I hope the name is not going to be the ratings. I hope yeah. so, because we don't need any more of that on TV. You know, I, I, did, <laughs> no. I did hear in an interview that when uh, one of the boys spotted the Bigfoot, that he was like, I was so scared. I just laid down and said, please don't get me Mr. Bigfoot. I don't think it went anything like yeah. that, but... That's how I interpreted it. <laughs> That's how you interpreted it? Nice. Oh, man. It says here that ever since the TV show Grinder came to a premature end on Fox, we've been waiting for former Parks and Rec star Rob Lowe to land another TV show comedy. Well, we definitely weren't expecting this to happen, but a vast. The Low Files on A&E starts on August 2nd. A&E has released the first trailer for The Low Files, and it's interesting, to say the least. This August, Lowe and his sons, Matthew and John Owen, will join him on the reality series to follow their cross-country adventures as they investigate all manners of supernatural beings, aliens, and the unexplained mysteries. Sounds a lot like a perfect setup for a comedy, doesn't it? I don't know, maybe. I kind of hope it's a comedy, but I kind of hope it's real. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be a comedy. Sounds like a real... Kind. I mean, it's probably going to be serious, but... Reality piece of shit. I don't know, man. Like, if they do it right, it could be golden because of all these fucking finding Bigfoots and swamp monsters and swamp donkeys and everything else. Maybe it's going to be like just a brush of fresh air into this, man. Maybe. It's, uh, maybe. It's, <laughs> this says here, it could possibly even be the supernatural parody that we've been wanting for for years. But Lowe and his sons swear they're playing this straight. The Low Files looks more like Ghost Hunters than the misadventures of the Winchester Brothers. And it says it all stems here from when Rob Lowe and his kids were out in the forests and they were attacked by the wood ape up in the Ozarks. And he says, quote, I'm fully aware that I sound like a crazy Hollywood kook right now. I was laying on the ground thinking I was going to be killed. This is what I love about our show. We have fun with all of this. We hit the bullseye between true believer and skeptic in a very fun way. So there you go. Um, he says people always ask him what his guilty pleasures are on TV, and he says ancient aliens and finding Bigfoot. I mean, at least yeah. it's not just. Is it, what's the show called? 
It's going to be called The Low Files. Okay, that's right. So it's not just Bigfoot. That's that's okay. I, I, I'm more in now. I'm more into this. Yeah, just slightly in. Not all the way in. Just slightly in. Rob's just pl- the tip. Rob's playing just the tip on the low <laughs> Damn it, you got me. You took it from me, you son of a bitch. So um, I guess going from the missing link on to the next step in human evolution. So the story is about a unique boy who lives in China in Duhua. And the boy's name is Nung Yo Shao. Do what? Unlike any other human, he was born with the ability to see in the dark. So first out the gate, what's really strange about this little boy is he's Asian. If you didn't guess it, yeah, he's Asian. He has very bright, vibrant blue eyes. And that is a very, very atypical um, trait of Asian. I almost said Asian humans as opposed to what? So it says that when the baby was born, his father took him to the hospital after noticing his eyes were very bright, vibrant blue. He was very nervous, thinking the child might have been blind, but doctors assured him not to worry. He'll be fine once he grows up. Surprising, but true. Uh, He did grow up just fine. The little boy now is uh, able to see in the dark. And uh, you guys have the link. I don't know if you looked at it, but the dude's got some pretty bright, vibrant blue eyes. Well, um, so does it describe how he sees things in, like, bright light because like i've got one eye that i have issues with really bad and i have to keep Mm -hmm. getting steroid shots in it and i've noticed that it stays um it stays dilated like open more than the other eye does so i've got like one Ah, eye pupil that's bigger than the other and uh so a lot of times that eye is really blurry and so i don't know how much light uh he has coming into his eye because Mm -hmm. if he could it depends if it changes if he can see in the dark and then come into light and still be able to see okay that's great that is an evolutionary step however it could be a de-evolutionary step and it could be just a type of blindness or something he's developing if he's basically his his pupils are always dilated this one photo he's squinting pretty bad and it's in the daylight and then this other photo where they do a close-up of his eyes so i'm glad you asked that because that's what i was going to hit next um he can see just fine in the light he can see very well indoors Um, when he goes outside he does complain about the brightness and he has to squint a little bit so you know he does like to wear a a pair of sunglasses when he's at recess and whatnot but they said otherwise he can see just fine Um, his pupils dilate the way they're supposed to, you know, they're very small when he's outside and very large when he's um, in the dark. And what kind of set things off is one of the little boy's friends reported to a teacher that when they went out one night to catch crickets, he could catch crickets without using a flashlight. Like he just took off into the dark and he was catching all sorts of bugs with, you know, little to no uh, trouble at all. So if you fast forward a little bit, the kid's teacher pulls him aside one day and he's like, what the heck's going on with your eyes there, champ? And his friend's like, shine a flashlight, shine a flashlight. So they turn the lights off and they shine a flashlight in the kid's eyes and they reflect just like a cat's. Really? shine, hmm. huh? Yeah, he's got shine. So um, if you want to fast forward a little bit farther, a journalist actually comes out to this little village that he lives in and does some studies. And at first they do that. They turn the lights off, they shine a flashlight and his eyes kind of gleam like a cat. So they say, okay, cool, let's uh, let's go outside and see if you can catch some bugs. So they turn off all the lights, they have the camera on, it's pitch black, of course, because there's no infrared being used, and a little boy runs over and catches whatever they're like, okay, you know, catch whatever you can find, and he just has, like, you know, handfuls of crickets. 
So they say, okay, this is kind of a cheap parlor trick. Maybe you guys just threw a handful of crickets outside and the kid knew exactly where to run and get them. So they took like a deck of playing cards. They made a bunch of fill in the blank questions for him, a bunch of math problems. They went to a room uh, at night. They hung up blankets all around the windows and the door openings. And they said, okay, you know, we want you to basically answer these questions to fill in the blank questions. He knocked them out. Perfect, perfect score. Um, the math problems he did perfectly. And then they held up a bunch of like playing cards and cue cards and, uh, index cards. And he guessed every single, well, he, he identified every single symbol or letter or playing card that was on every single card. A hundred percent. Huh? Yet. Isn't that wicked? Creepily blue though. They're not just like, yeah, that's a weird color. It's, it's very strange. Right, super atypical. And where does the story yeah. actually come from? Because it, the website we're looking at is called Unknown Facts, and I've never heard of it. But I didn't know if it said anywhere in the article about where this news story came from, because this could all be bunk. Well, you can watch the ADG, which is a UK news site, okay. talk about the kid. So, I mean, I'm sure it's probably listed in other places as well. This is just the, you know, one of the first or right. second links I could find that looked, eh, you know, moderately reputable. I like how the bottom YouTube channel is Alien Hybrid or Star Child Discovered. Right. So, they're kind of hinting at the fact that this kid may be a star child. I think it's just a dude who's pretty lucky and is, you know. If you ever seen Big Trouble in Little China, I mean, Asian people with green eyes, once in a lifetime, like, psh, where's yeah. Jack Burton? I don't know if you him. knew this, Preston, but that's not a documentary. That's a movie. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. Moving on from there, we also have the news story about Hobby Lobby being a bunch of bastards and apparently purchased thousands of ancient artifacts smuggled out of Iraq. And I'm, you guys have heard about that shit, Ancient right? Hobby Lobby secret, huh? Yeah, so uh, basically Hobby Lobby purchased thousands of ancient artifacts smuggled out of modern-day Iraq via the United Arab Emirates and Israel. Uh, that would be the uh, Emirates. Emirates, thank you. In Israel, in 2010 and 2011, attorneys for the Eastern District of New York announced on Wednesday, uh, as part of the settlement, the American craft supply mega chain will pay $3 million, and the U.S. government will also seize the illicit artifacts. So not only did your shit get stolen back from me that you stole, you also got to fucking pay $3 million? Way to go, Hobby Lobby. Well, I'm so glad that they took all that money away from women for their birth control. Right, I was going to say, maybe you should have just given your associates birth control. The last time I looked, birth control wasn't a sin, but stealing was, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Boom, shakalaka. You heard it here Boom, first, folks? Boom, shakalaka. So what were, they, uh, what were they doing with said artifacts? Like, you would just go into the Hobby Lobby. And they were stealing oh, them, I, yeah, Preston. They were, were stealing they, were them. They, they turned a few of those pots into flashlights. I know. Ooh, but were they putting them in their headquarters? Ooh. Like, you go to the like you know the, the head CEO's like office of Hobby Lobby, and he's like, look at my steel that I got from Iraq. It's authentic. <laughs> <laughs> now when okay. I break into so, every video game vault, I'm going to start throwing fucking pots around and say, fuck you, Hobby Lobby. It's the Ming Dynasty law. <laughs> You're going to be known as the, as the Link Burglar. Pot smasher. Cotton, Kentucky. So, okay, Preston, to answer your question, the Green family, which is the family that owns Are Hobby Lobby. Are they actually Green? I hope so. Do they have blue They're eyes? They're a, uh, a bunch of committed evangelical Christians who are probably most famous for their participation in the 2014 Supreme Court case, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, which blah, 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 birth control, blah, blah, blah. We all heard about it. They're a bunch of assholes. They should probably give their associates birth control if they want it. Anyway, the Greens are big collectors of antiques and ancient... Um, 
antiquities. That didn't make any sense, but we're going to keep it in there. And they had a primary vision of opening up a museum of the Bible, I guess, in Washington, D.C. this fall. So apparently they were going to be using those artifacts in their actual uh, installations and in their museum. So... What yeah. the fuck was that? That's not like a cat. Was that was that the little Chinese boy? <laughs> part Chinese boy, part cat. This is what's funny, and we're not pointing any fingers. We're just giving the facts here. ISIS has been selling a bunch of uh, old antiques to people, and it says here untold millions and billions of items have been sold. And they make it clear here they're not saying the Green family bought any antiques from ISIS. No. They're just simply, what? No, not them. They wouldn't have done such a thing. <laughs> oh man but yeah so i mean they're wondering how they did get them obviously it's probably off the black market the alternative here though if isis ain't selling it they're destroying it so you know let's just not let, i would think it's better to let them sell it on the black market so at least that you know they're not being destroyed because when they're like <laughs> bombing shit and blowing up statues that are like priceless and like you know listen to this hobby lobby wired 1.6 million dollars to seven different bank accounts associated with five different people to pay for the items the artifacts were shipped to the u.s in multiple packages falsely labeled tile samples <laughs> <laughs> They were also sent to multiple locations. As the complaint notes, the use of multiple shipping addresses for a single recipient is consistent with methods used by cultural pro- property smugglers to avoid scrutiny by customs. One customs forms the EUAE dealer supplied false invoices that substantially undervalued the pieces, presumably as a way to avoid customs inspection. Uh, January 2011, Customs and Border Protection seized five packages falsely labeled as originating in Turkey, uh, blah, 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 investigation, blah, blah, blah. They seized roughly 3,450 objects. Fuck, man, they're screwed. They really... No, they're rich and they're Christian, so the Republicans will protect them. So The CEO of Michaels is like, yeah, our business is fine. <laughs> you know what else is amazing, Rob? Is it is it marrying anime characters? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm totally doing this next week. Me and Dude. Princess Zelda are going to get married. Why, yes, Rob. There is a place in Japan where you can marry an anime character. Spawned by the popular trending virtual reality game... Spawned by the popular virtual reality game... Nitzuma Lovely x you can play the game and create meaningful relationships with virtual reality girlfriends. And once you create these relationships to a certain... Uh, the only ones I can get, the virtual reality kind. <laughs> once you get your relationships deep enough and strong enough, you can then, sir, go to a virtual chapel. Well, okay, back up. You can then go in... <laughs> A virtual chapel. Sorry, it just seems so silly to me when you watch the video. You can then go to a real chapel, put on a VR headset to go to a virtual chapel... And you can have an actual wedding ceremony with your VR girlfriend. And then virtually consummate the marriage with your VR headset. <laughs> well, sir, you're close. You can actually kiss your bride. What? And you've got to watch the video because it shows you some of the video, you know, when you're talking to your little uh, anime girlfriend. And then it shows the guy in there in a tux in a wedding chapel with his giant, you know, set of goggles on his head. And he leans forward. 
And then in real life, a woman walks up with a set of like rubber lips on a stick and just like shoves it in his face. <laughs> so they couldn't even hire a woman to kiss him. They actually get the, it's like, ew. Right. That's the worst. It's like a dowel rod with like a wedding bouquet on it and like a set of like foam lips. And she just kind of like leans in real quick and it's like, right in his face and pulls him back. <laughs> Oh, man, it's fantastic. This sounds amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff. Coming at you from the 37th parallel, from the basement of a mad scientist, it's more fantastical tales of robots. So, speaking of Japan and marrying anime characters, Japan also may have robots to haul your luggage, fight crime, and... In the train stations, East Japan Ooh. Railways hopes that bots will be the perfect solution to solving your travelers' common complaints. So, uh, traveling can, of course, be a pain. But last week, they announced that creations of JRE Robot Robotic Stations, a company that will design robots to help travelers navigate train stations and get their trains on time. Other robots will be designed to carry luggage, mainly assisting travelers with disabilities. Not merely those who hate to lug around heavy suitcases. Robots will also be programmed to understand a variety of languages to accommodate foreign visitors. So you will be able to go to a robot and say, I'm lost, I'm American. He'll say, sorry, Mr. American, please follow me. And such. Um, also, robots, oh man, designed to clean the floors. Ooh, I'm out of a job. Better get that pharmacy tech license pretty fast. <laughs> Damn. Uh, security rob- robots can detect shoplifters and also part of the initiative. Yeah, and uh, so we got RoboCops coming, I guess. So they're going to say, please put down your weapon. And you're going to be like, I don't have the weapon. And it's going to add 209 the shit out of you. Like, no. And, and this is... This is how much this section of the show has disrupted me. At the very bottom of it, it says, The Coolest Robots from UK, UK Robotics Week 2017. And it's got this cute little Roomba-like robot that looks like a, a little deer with an antler. And maybe it's a puppy. It's really hard to tell in this picture because of the, the antenna. It may be a puppy-looking thing. But uh, all I could think of is, like, how long till somebody tries to put a hole in that and fuck it? <laughs> That's what this that's what this segment of the show has done to me. It's like, oh, it's adorable. How long till someone tries to fuck it? Oh man. But that's what's sad. Like we live in a society where that's what we do. It's like, man, that's a nice looking Corvette. Could you just put a port in the side that I could just get my jollies off in? Okay, my strange addiction. Well, you know, there's no easy way to segue into our actual main topics from here so i say preston just take it away man tell us what you're going to tell us and then tell us all right so this next topic that we're about to discuss i can confidently say 97 percent of the population has no knowledge of it right because when i brought it up to you guys for the first time and i was like hey sean did you ever hear about the worldwide war of the pygmies versus cranes you were like fuck no i haven't there you go exactly so let's get to the long or the short of it (laughs) All right, never mind. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) So according uh, to records from the Greeks, the Romans, Chinese, the Norse, the Arabs, and the Cherokee, we have a vague cross-cultural recollection of a millennial-long globe-spanning pygmy crane war. That's right, shore people versus birds. Uh, resulting in the rise of the crane and the obliteration of the pygmy, from which we have clearly learned nothing, or rather, there was an exceptionally effective pro-crane pro-crane propaganda that has led to our association of cranes with peace, serenity, and good fortune, proving once again that it is the victor, not the victim, that writes history. 
So, what happened in this pygmy crane war? Well, the Greeks give us the most of the details and tell us that a pygmy queen named Ono pissed off some Greek, <laughs> Greek gods. Namely, oh no! Yeah, oh no! <laughs> oh no! Mario. Um, so she basically pissed off the Greek gods, uh, gods namely uh, Hera, and uh, they were uh, celebrating her marriage. To a human mortal uh, named uh, Nicodemus. A human what? I'm sorry. Huh? You start that all over, and I think it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, whatever. Anyway, she was marrying some dude. They were walking down the aisle. You know, they they had a, a half human baby called Mopus. And uh, the Greek gods were like, yay! You know, cross cross cultural marriage. This is amazing. Here you're getting the, you know, the pygmy queen was like, fuck you, bitch. So Hera, you know, got upset and decided that uh, what's she going to do about it? She's going to turn the cranes against them. And uh, since the pygmies were so small, and before you ask how small, pygmies were considered to be the length of your forearm. So the cranes could easily eat them and decimate their lands. But the pygmies fought back by hitting the trenches at night and smashing the crane uh, crane's eggs before more of these bastard birds could go to war against them. So they created genocide, you know, just like, you know, Hitler and the Jews. It's kind of sad, right? Now, the war got rough, real rough. The pygmies got displaced into Egypt, to China, and eventually the pygmi seemed to have found refuge as far as southeast part of North America, and where they still found no peace from the cranes because the cranes had this weird interspecies military alliance with the local geese. So then when uh, they made it to the United States, instead of the cranes, uh, these little bastards had to deal with geese. <laughs> and uh, it, it just it went downhill from there. Like, the pygmies were just fucked at that point. And uh, they, they even decided that at the end they were going to bring out the big guns. And you guys know what the big guns were? Guns. Pelicans. Fucking. No. They rode to battle on top of goats. Just like in The Hobbit. Yeah, they got atop those battle-born goats and like, yeah, but I'm going to swing in their clubs and shit. And yeah, that didn't help him at all. Okay. It's intense. So what is, you know, where do we find all this? So if we turn to history, what, 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 you know, what does history say about the pygmies? So if we go to some, they all died. died. So if we just kind of look at little excerpts from the history here, Aristotle from the history of animals said, the cranes do this. They travel from Scythica to the marshes of the higher parts of Egypt, from which the Nile originates. This is the place where the pygmies dwell, and this is no fable, for there really is, as it is said, a race of dwarfs, both men and horses, which lead a life of troglodytes. And then uh, Pyme the Elder goes on to say that uh, they live in a land in Scythica, and that uh, their local dialect used to call them the cat's eye, and there was a belief that they were driven away by cranes. And if we get to the Cherokee tale, the Cherokees say that uh, they traveled, uh, this Indian, young Indian man, Native American, traveled south until they came upon a tribe of very little people called the Tungsungui, who had strangely shaped bodies and barely reached up to a man's knee. 
And when the Indian man asked them, well, what are you guys living in the sand swore? Why are you living in these little gopher holes? And they said, we're trying to, we're trying to escape the cranes and we don't know how to do it. So he said, fucking hit him in the head with a stick, you moron. So he taught the, the <laughs> pygmies how to fight back, but it wasn't good enough because then, uh, the, 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 they just kicked their ass. I don't know. It doesn't really go into detail. And then, uh, there was the Catalan world map from 1375 which actually showed a representation of pygmies fighting cranes. And right below the uh, little picture of it, it said, Here grow the little men who have built five palms length, and though they may be little and not fit for weighty matters, they are brave and clever and uh, at weaving and keeping cattle, and know ye these men have children when they are but 12 years old and live commonly to but 40 years. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. So, after all that, I think uh, the, one of the things that stands out the most is that, uh, the, you know, this tale of this worldwide war that lasted a millennium between the Krang and the Pygmies was actually cross-cultural. So no matter where we turn into history, there's always these tales, whether it's from the Native Americans, the Arabs, the Chinese. Everybody had the same tale, and this was supposed to be at a point in history where cross-cultural communication didn't happen. So history now tells us that you know, back in the day, we, you know, all these different cultures didn't have communication with one another. So for it to span all over the earth like that, there has to be some truth to it. Or another way we could look at it, um, one that, you know, some historians think that there were 12 tribes of Israel and that the, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel each represent a species of man like the ne- Neanderthal, the Cro-Magnon, the Denisovians, etc., etc. And that these pygmies were actually a species of humanity who got wiped out by these asshole birds. Or that, you know, how we turn everything like the Noah's Flood from a, like a, a historical event into a fable that there actually was a war between two groups of people, ones who were a little bit smaller and maybe ones who were a little bit taller, but they associated uh, these tall people with uh, the cranes, like some people uh, associated this group of people in history called the the knowledgeable ones. That term got turned into the serpents, and so maybe it's just a a miscommunication or a mistranslation somewhere, and it really wasn't birds, but two groups of people were duking it out. So it's funny that you talk about some of that because we talked about giants a while back and, you know, you and I are about five foot eight ish, five foot nine. And if somebody rolls through town and they're six foot eight, then they're going to be giants to us. Damn it. Yeah. It's a tall motherfucker. Yeah. It's just like, you know, watching uh, game of Thrones, they have a couple of giants that help watch the wall or whatever the wild, the wild people are. They bring a giant and he wasn't really like four men tall. He was just, are you serious? That thing was huge. The actual giant was quite a large giant. Well, maybe I'm. He forgetting. was at least three. To, he was at least three yeah. people tall. You think so? Yeah, wing one. Oh wing yeah, one. and he was about two people wide. Well, maybe three. Shows how much I pay attention to that show. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, yeah, things get misconstrued through time. So even a little person, a midget, would could be considered to be a pygmy if you've got a land full of you know six and a half foot tall men. Right. They're going to consider them to be you know a forearms width tall and call them pygmies. So. And I actually uh, was it in the Philippines or um, one of the Indonesian islands down there where they actually found a cave where they they had a large group of skeletons that they dubbed the pygmies because their average height was four two or four three, 
and they showed that uh, at that uh, at that point, at one point, that there was a group of people that inhabited that island that were very small. Um, you know, the writings that I looked at for this story, you know, they said, you know, the length of your forearm, which was considered like a foot and a half. But right. but we do find these, even in Ireland, tales of these leprechauns, like the an actual group of people, that they were just considered really small. They were, you know, dwarf-sized, so to speak. Right. Well, and, you know, I was thinking when you talked to me about this earlier about doing a, or, you know, last week or whatever, about doing the pygmies versus the cranes. I was like, man, there's not any pygmies. I really doubt there's a small breed of people. And then I came across the article that I'm going to talk about next, and it mentions potentially a mummified corpse of a tiny person that was like a foot, one foot, 11 inches tall. And I don't know. I was kind of taken back. It's probably just a hoax like most of these things, but it's still interesting nonetheless. And well, you've heard of the Hobbit people, yeah. right? Yeah. The Florentines uh, Flor- Flor- or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're not quite one foot tall, but they're a little taller. But, yeah. Or, so they actually exist. Or like uh, yeah. the Star Child skull, which they found down in Peru. Um, yeah. They, Peru's a hotbed for Star Childs, man. When they uh, reconstructed that skull and, you know, they tried to build it to a model like, okay, well, the skull is this size and it would have gone on a body this size. I think they predicted that the body would have been around like three and a half feet tall. So. Right. Well, okay, so this starts off in in Peru, in Nazca, and they've had hoaxes roll through there before, and they've also had unexplained things roll through there before. But basically what they're saying is a small humanoid-shaped object is said to be the latest of a number of suspected alien mummies found in a tomb in Nazca, Peru. And last month, I think it was... Let me see when this is written real quick. Sorry. This was July 10th. So back in June, that sounds about right. May or June, I remember seeing a tiny little blip about them finding a mummy, an alien mummy in a tomb. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Just like every other time. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically last month, uh, express.co.uk reported claims of a three fingered non-humanoid corpse being, or a non-human corpse being found. And they, uh, a scientist are calling it Maria for a research team to basically, to have some experiments on and UFO investigators are now, you know, flocking over there saying there's some sort of human bodies. Um, and that the government swept in and grabbed them and took them away and blah, 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 conspiracy, blah, blah. But, um, if you look at this thing, it is kind of interesting. It's either a, a mummified body of a alien. It's probably about five foot tall and they did some scans and some reconstructions. And this thing has an arm span that is wider than it is tall. So the, the, you know, the arms, the fingertips go way down past the knees. Um, it only has three fingers on each hand, elongated fingers. The skull has big eyes, um, not much of a nose and no noticeable ears. So it kind of rems- uh, kind of resembles your grays, right? but it could just be kind of a paper mache right. piece of crap that somebody used. Cause like I said, there's been a lot of hoaxes that have rolled through, especially from Peru, but um, alternative news site, Gaia or Gia.com claims to be investigating the discoveries for it. How do you spell that? Gaia? Cause I want to make sure you're pronouncing. It could be Gaia, G-A-I-A. Gaia. That is Gaia. Gaia. Okay, sweet. Um, they're doing a series of online documentaries about this find, and it says that they're going to be supposedly documenting the actual examination of the body. Whether or not we uh, we'll see that, it's another question. Right. Because they're making you pay a sign up fee in order to watch the videos. Yeah, they. That's a, a subscription network, a lot like uh, Hulu or uh, Netflix. Oh yeah, Gaia. Okay, I know what Gaia yeah. is. Sure. So okay. Yeah. It's, it's all that weird esoteric shit, and they have all these different yeah. documentaries. It, it comes 
stand like part of it comes standard with an Amazon. So if you sign up for an Amazon account, you can actually yeah, yeah. get some of the documentaries that are on there. And uh, they, I think they had one on that that I watched about the the uh, Paraxin skulls. So those elongated uh-huh. skulls that are floating all around Paraxa, Peru. And uh, they they did a bunch of studies on those, and, and so in that case, they actually found that uh, those are human skulls, so they are real skulls. But it's not a deformality, like it, or it's not a uh, ritualistic head binding. Like these are actual, like an offshoot of humanity. So it goes back yeah. to the whole, like you know, tribes of Israel, where like this, these the Paraxins were considered a different subspecies of humanity. So they they lived alongside humans, like the Cro-Magnons, up to a point. So, I mean, some of these other, like the star childs or this, you know, weird mummified midget skull with the three fingers could be, again, <laughs> right? Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily be an alien. Like, everybody jumps the guns like, alien, Praxins, alien. No, I mean, it doesn't need to be an alien because we found throughout history now, like, we're finding all these digs where we find, uh, you know, Homo sapiens, sapiens, Homo sapien, whatever, you know, they come up with some weird genealogical name for them. But we're actually finding that, that there was more than one form of, of humans on the Earth at one point in time. Huh. Yeah, I mean, pygmies, right? Yeah, we just fucking were dicks and we <laughs> killed them all. You know, right. we could have saved the fucking pygmies. We could have been like, you know what, fuck you, cranes, you're asshole birds. We don't like you, just like dolphins are assholes of the seas. Cranes are assholes of the air, and we could have saved. We could have saved. We could have stepped up and said, "No, we're not going to stand for this." But we're like, "Eh, fuck, they're little. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck writes a goat into war? Let them have them, eat them." Um, so what's interesting is they also had a small blurb on the news site saying that it's rumored that many smaller bodies were found as well in the same tomb as Maria. And that's what just popped up in the news a couple of days ago. So Maria is what they're calling the you know, five foot, whatever body. They also then talk about a mummy called, it's a go. <laughs> they also talk about the mummy of a being called Victoria, uh, resurfacing as well. And so the thing about Victoria is she's only one foot, 11 inches tall. Uh, again, three fingers on her hands, but the way this body's found is almost in like a seated position with its knees up against its chest and its hands on its knees. And I mean, it's, it's been mummified. It is very much emaciated and bony and everything else. But what's kind of cool about this and potentially giving it more credence, I say in air quotes, uh, when scientists got a hold of the body and started kind of wiping away the dust, it reveals what looks like um, really old scales like fish or lizard skin on the body, kind of a greenish tint. Um, they did an x-ray and a CAT scan, and it shows that it has 11 vertebrae in its spine, and it has a full skeletal system inside. Um Supposedly, again, air quotes, uh, professionals are saying this is a very elaborate hoax if they went that far to create a very convincing skeletal structure inside the being. Um, but what's cool is, well, I shouldn't say what's what's uncool. There's, there's no head. This body is found decapitated with no head nearby that they've got. Um, but when they took some tools and started kind of separating the skin and kind of clearing the dust off, there's actual fibers inside of it that suggest tendons. Um, there's a bone structure. They said it's very much a, an uh, anatomical anomaly, but they're very convinced, supposedly, that it is a creature that they have not yet discovered. And again, blah, 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 not potentially of this earth. So I want to kind of keep an eye on this for a little while and see what develops but uh, I think it's pretty interesting nonetheless to see that maybe it's a maybe it's one of your pygmies that they found maybe the last of the pygmies hold up in a cave I'm not saying it's aliens but it's aliens <laughs> right <laughs> 
Did you guys click on the link and look at the pictures of this thing? Yeah, I did. I thought the I did I thought not. the first one, um, the second one that you were talking about, the decapitated one, uh, was a little bit more convincing. I I thought that the first article that that body really did look like a paper mache piece of shit. Right. Like the first time I looked at it, I'm like, what the fuck is this? And yeah, um, but you know. Who am I to judge? Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. But I mean, yeah. pretty much every single thing that we get excited about just proves to be fake. You know, all the Bigfoot yeah. bodies, um, the, the, the Roswell pick, the body, the Pygmy Crane War was not fake. That that's that's a real deal. Okay, those assholes. That was it was real to yeah, me. It was real to me. Those <laughs> asshole real to birds. Me. I am I'm a I'm a crane <laughs> hater as we speak. That's no more. That's cranes. funny. <laughs> Well, you know what? I was worried about a segue, but I've got it. Are you sitting down for this? I'm ready. Speaking of star children, I think we're going to finish out this episode with the ultimate star child, none other than David Bowie himself. This is and that time he threw a sexy, sexy pool party with the devil. So I was doing some research about Bowie because I'm not much of a super fan, but I'm a fan nonetheless. Preston, you're a pretty big fan of Bowie, right? Yeah. And Rob, you've heard of him. <laughs> He's no Hootie and the Blowfish. Don't, no, don't make me, don't make no. me compare the two, Rob. Yeah, Apples and oranges. On. And I kind of dig going down this rabbit hole of just the different personas he had and kind of where he was at mentally when he was uh, putting them all together. So uh, I found this little tidbit here, and I thought I wanted to share with everybody. Just shortly after Bowie put Ziggy Stardust down to rest, um, he took a keen liking to uh, America. And so right around that time, 74, 75, he made a little trip over to the U.S. and decided to stay a while. So when he first got to the U.S., he stopped in New York. And in New York, he met a woman by the name of Wally Elmlark. And she was well-connected in the, in the music industry. Um, she was a columnist for Circus Magazine. She's kind of a who's who of the, uh, the music scene. Everybody knew her. Everybody liked her. Blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing about Mrs. Elmlark here is she was also a spiritual guide and more commonly known as the White Witch of New York. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she actually uh, was the proprietor of the New York School of the Occult Arts and Science. Um, she would help you out with luck spells, love spells, and other spells, um, including some of the stuff she reportedly helped David Bowie use to get popular. Now, I don't really buy into that too much, but, you know, might not be too far out of our, uh, our realm here. And she was described as lively, imaginative, energetic, well-spoken, and quite attractive in her flowing white garments, complete with fashionable silver moon ornaments. So it's said that David, actually, when he got to the States, he was already knee-deep in a huge fascination with the occult. So once he met Mrs. Elmlark here, um, it kind of just spirals farther and farther. He picks up some books from her, he starts doing more studies, and blah, 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 blah. When he moved to the West Coast, the musician became obsessed with the occult mystic Aleister Crowley. You know, we're all pretty well-versed in his bizarre undertakings. And he started doing weird um, rituals, like drawing pentagrams on the walls of the houses that he was in, and he would uh, start chanting spells. And it really started to kind of worry all of Bowie's... Um, you know, his manager and his wife at the time and everything else. But they're just like, yeah, you know what? Bowie's going to be Bowie and Bowie's going to do what Bowie wants. So um, what's really strange about this, um, this is right around the time that he becomes the thin white Duke. Mm -hmm. um, so he, you know, kind of dresses in a long coat, white shirt, slick back hair. And you're also going to notice things like the dude was super thin. 
super scrawny, almost, you know, emaciated compared to his former look. He was kind of like a, just an, a, a dried up husk of his former self. And that's because he was also nose deep in booger sugar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guys, yeah, it was the 70s, man. And so, you know, you've got Pablo Escobar and all that good stuff going on, the Colombian drug trade and Coke's running rampant across the U.S. It's taking over our uh, politicians and our everybody in the corporate world and everything else. So um, when he got to California, he met a drug dealer named Freddie Sessler. Not Adam Sessler's brother? And this dude's super hardcore, and even in the fact that he's a uh, concentration camp survivor. And he's also known to be the Rolling Stones uh, drug supplier as well. He's the guy that gave Keith Richards all the coke and everything else. So he provides uh, David Bowie with a never-ending supply of medical-grade cocaine. And during these cocaine-fueled years in the States, Bowie not only spent the majority of his time hopped up on the booger sugar, he also dramatically changed his diet. So to give you an idea of what this guy's frame of mind was, he was doing so much coke, and he was getting just so weirded out by all this stuff that was going on in the U.S., he somehow managed to convince himself that he only needed to survive on red bell peppers and milk. Hell yeah. So that's all this dude ate for a long time was cocaine, milk, and red bell peppers. Um, They're thinking probably milk just to help him keep some weight on his bones, and nobody really knows why the guy liked red bell peppers. Well, probably to also kill the the, uh, spice. Because if you're trying to eat bell peppers all the time, that'd burn you up. Seriously, milk's what they tell you to yeah, use. Yeah, but bell right peppers aren't spicy. They're yeah, just they're, a more they're a really sweet pepper. Of a green bell pepper. But if you have a bunch of them at one time, I'm sure they would get the no. burn would increase. Yeah, it might. I don't know. I think maybe some heartburn or something at least. So, yeah, there you go. But basically, Bowie wasn't really in the most healthy of mental and physical states. And the songwriter, um, they say what was weird about that time, and I just figured this out. When he wasn't on stage, he was always wearing that real long overcoat you know he always had that trench coat on and what they're saying is a lot of his closest friends um, reported that he was doing so much coke and he was so malnourished he had a really bad case of the chills um, partly because of the coke that he did you know the side effects of the drugs he would have to wear that overcoat just to kind of remain warm even though he was in freaking sultry california the dude had to wear that long coat just to keep himself uh you know climatized so uh bowie moves to la And he first stayed in a house with Deep Purple's bassist, Glenn Hughes. And Glenn said that Bowie was kind of a cool dude, but he never slept. He was always just on coke, on coke, on coke, going 100 miles an hour. He describes it as a coke storm. He'd be up for three or four days at a time, and he would just be walking around going on bizarre tangents about Aleister Crowley, uh, numerals, Nazi scientists, and everything else. He was just totally wired all the time. And also, he started kind of going... um, through a bit of uh, psychic darkness or psychosis. And part of that, too, um, people rumor is he was always haunted, maybe, by his alternate personas. You know, maybe to him. And we don't know. This is kind of dumb, but it kind of makes sense. He was haunted by, you know, the Thin White Duke and Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane and all these other, you know, iconic personas that he had. But, yeah, he was in a pretty dark place. So the cocaine addled David Bowie, after he moves out of the bassist's house, he moves in with his new manager, Michael Lippman, and his wife. And he would always freak them out because during this time, David Bowie thought that a a coven of African-American witches were after him and trying to steal his semen to make, uh, some reports say the Antichrist, some reports say just to make a, uh, a creature that could take Bowie down because supposedly he was pretty powerful with dark magic as well. well. What's funny about that is uh, Stephen King 
wrote a novel called the Dark Tower series, and uh, one of the short stories that they released, and I don't remember what book it was in, but basically uh, the character Roland gets captured by some uh, by a coven of witches disguised as nurses, and they basically kept milking him for his semen so they could use it to do something similar, and he ended up killing them all. Really? But, yeah. So I don't know if he got that idea from Bowie's uh, story. Huh, maybe. Um, but yeah, he starts... That's interesting. So Bowie was freaking out his wife and his manager because he was saving all of his urine in jars and bottles, saving all his toenail clippings and his hair clippings from haircuts to prevent them from being used in dark rituals by the witches that were stalking him. He would and drop, that is a popular trope for wizards to protect their... Just about every novel you read about right. wizards and stuff that... Right. Except for Harry Potter. Not, but <laughs> That we know of. Um, he would draw protective pentagrams all over the walls um, by the light of using black candles, and he would mumble a lot of stuff about <laughs> Tibetan black magic. He was obsessed with a particular book called Psychic Self-Defense by Dion Fortune. So you can tell the guy is kind of slipping farther and farther out of touch. And he even admits later on down the road that he was just in some really weird places. But... Fueled some really good songs too. So um, David actually talks about in an interview how he had a very uh, high fascination with Nazis and their search for the Holy Grail. And during this time, he paid with the worst manic depression he's ever been in in his life. And his psyche went through the roof and just fractured into pieces. I was hallucinating 24 hours a day. I felt like I'd fallen into the bowels of the earth. So yeah, guys getting darker and darker. So next after that, Lippman, his manager, and Bowie and his wife move into a house on 637 North Donhay Drive in Beverly Hills. And during this time, it's right around uh, the, the Marilyn Manson murders, the Manson family murders. And when he first moved, he lived not too far away from the LaBianca house. So he was always paranoid that people were out to get him, and he was terrified about the Manson murders and everything else. So, so they move into this new house on Donna Tohini Drive in Beverly Hills, and his ex-wife, in one of the books that she wrote called Backstage Passes, Life on the Wild Side with David Bowie, she says, This new house we got was a white cube surrounding an indoor swimming pool. David liked the place, but I thought it was a bit too small to meet our needs for that current time, so he probably wouldn't stay there very long. And I wasn't crazy about the indoor pool. My experience with indoor pools um, led to them always being a problem. This one was no exception, albeit not in the usual way. One night when David is sitting by the pool, probably finishing off his fourth or fifth nightcap, uh, maybe doing a couple bumps at the old booger sugar, he reports that he looks over and happens to see the indoor pool start to kind of ripple and then waves and then churning and then bubbling. And then out of nowhere... Guess who pops out of the pool, guys? Satan! Satan, that's right. Bowie reports that while he's sitting there having himself a couple drinks, out of nowhere, a whirlwind freaking you know hurricane erupts out of his pool, and Satan comes up and just stares at him, laughing and mumbling and chanting incantations. Uh, Bowie flips the fuck out and runs out of there Scooby-Doo style. And next thing you know, his <laughs> <laughs> thin white toque. Um, I can just see him jump up in the air, with his legs spinning in the air. <laughs> right, right. Angie calls Wally Elmlark back in New York for help because David wanted an exorcism, and she knew that a Greek Orthodox church in L.A. would have done it for us because there was a priest available at that time for such services. But David wouldn't have it. 
No strangers allowed in the house, he would say. So there they stood, with Wally's instructions and a couple hundred dollars worth of books, talismans, and everything else. They're basically set up to take on the devil, right? So they set up this table. They spread all the books out, all the talismans and everything else. There, David was primed and ready. The proper books and doodads were arranged on an old-fashioned lectern table. The incantations began, and although I had no idea what was going on or being said, or what language it was being said in, I couldn't stop at help feeling this cold chill raise up through me, as David droned on and on and on with the incantations. There's no easy or elegant way to say what happens next, so I'm just going to be straight and to the point. At a certain point in the ritual, the pool began to bubble. It bubbled vigorously, and it didn't involve any of the pool's filters or jets. It's just in a way I can't understand or explain. As David watched this happen in absolute terror, I tried to be flippant, and I said, Well, dear, aren't you clever? It seems to be working. Something's making a move, don't you think? But she says I couldn't keep it up. It was very, very strange. I was having trouble accepting with what my eyes were seeing. We both left the pool in a hurry, and David told me after relaxing for a moment, I had to go check on it from time to time because he was just terrified to go anywhere near the pool. So she kept her eye on it through the sliding glass door for a couple minutes, and after about 45 minutes or so, he finally said, just go out there and look at it. So she says, with her heart in her throat, she slides the door open and looks through the glass at the pool. Didn't see anything. Nothing's going on. Um, ignoring David's panic screams. And I like to imagine him just <laughs> a mouthful of bell peppers and milk. <laughs> don't go in there, Angie. Don't go in there. <laughs> um, she went to the edge and looked in the pool. And she, sen- she then says, I saw what I saw. Nothing can change that. On the bottom of the pool, there was a large shadow or what I might explain as a stain. It hadn't been there before the ritual began, but it was there now. It was in the shape of the beast. The beast of the underworld. It reminded me of those twisted, tormented gargoyles screaming silently from the spires of medieval cathedrals. It was ugly, shocking, malevolent, and it frightened me. It had long horns, it was curled over in a hunch, and had long, sharp teeth. And I don't know how you can see all this in a stain. It sounds pretty freaking, you know, detailed to me, but whatever. Metal. (laughs) Um, I still don't know what to think about that night. It runs directly counter to my pragmatism, to my pragmatism and my everyday faith and integrity of what the normal world is. And it confuses me greatly. What troubles me most of all is that if you were to call the stain the devil or the mark of Satan, I wouldn't know how I could disagree with you. David, of course, insisted that we move from the house as quickly as possible, and we did that, but I've heard subsequently that tenants who have moved in after us have not been able to remove the stain. No matter how much they clean the pool, drain the pool, or paint over it numbers of times, the shadow has always come back. (laughs) So, there you go. I mean, did the devil really appear to David Bowie, or was he just so hopped up on booger sugar that uh, he just imagined the entire thing? So, I I one time thought I'd seen the devil... Like, legit, I was coming home from a grocery store with my mom, and uh, we pulled into the to our apartment, and as we're turning left, I look over to the right, and there's a man dressed all in black, walking with a cane, uh-huh. he had a top hat on, and he, he, he just looked just odd and out of place, Like, and people were acting like they didn't see him, and so when I pulled up, I ran out and chased down the devil to try to find him, and he was gone. Ooh, really? Yeah, it was weird. <sighs> like something just told me it was it was something that like I was like it's so off and you know you'd figure it was so there was no I mean he could have went somewhere but 
it was like the office and the office was closed. He could have walked over to somebody's apartment, but I really think it would have been a hard time to make it there in the time that I was doing, considering the leisurely stroll he was taking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. That is, that's super creepy. And you never saw it again after that? No, no. I just seen it that one time. Really? That's interesting. And mom didn't see it either. That's what was weird. Oh, really? She, I told her about it, and she looked, and she didn't see it at the time. Mm-hmm. But she, we'd already kind of driven past, so she may have not even been able to see it. But it was just like one of those situations like, well, fuck, I wish you'd seen that. Right. So I was going to do some David Bowie research for the show one time, because mm-hmm. uh, in uh, his last album, um, yeah, the, uh, the title song is Black Star. And the lyrics are in the village of Orman, and uh, you know stands like a solitary candle. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look up Village of Orman online, there used to be a Tumblr page, and it had all these weird occultist photos. And there was a backstory that it was an actual villa that occultists would gather to. And I was like, oh, man, this is fucking amazing. You know, David Bowie, you know, he's got all these, like, hidden meanings and stuff in his songs. And, like, you know, we have the song about, you know, the the occult. And, uh, you know, Black Star is also a term that they use for cancer. So somebody who has cancer, uh, when they look at your your MRI or whatever it is, they'll say, like, hey, there's, there's the Black Star referring to the cancer spot. And uh, I went to go do up the research. And the only thing I could find was, yes, there's an actual village um, in like Norway called the village of Orman and it means the village of the serpent. And that was it. And I'm like, wait, what happened to all these fucking websites that were talking about how it was on a cult village and I could never find it ever again. But that actually huh. makes a lot of sense now that he was so heavy into the occult and that, uh, he would write a, a song about that. And you know, you look at these images on Tumblr and some of them are pretty fucking creepy. Wow. Well, I mean, we could probably do a whole episode about nothing but David Bowie and the occult and everything else. And why shouldn't we? Well, maybe we can another time. Maybe put that on the old back burner and we'll just see what happens with it. By the way, I looked at that Dark Tower short story. It was called The Little Sisters of Luria. Hmm. All right. Well, guys... I say we go ahead and plug stuff and get out of here. I wanted to talk about a missing persons case. I think I'll save that for the next episode because my iPad just died. So what's everybody want to plug? So as always, listen to our buddies, Big Steven and Brady's podcast. Oh, indeed. Uh, The last episode that dropped was the uh, coverage of the E3 conference and all the things that came out and, uh, Big Steven had a guest on there, and uh, they got into garage sailing and you know all the kleptic finds that Steven found one day. It was a pretty good episode. I really enjoyed it because I didn't give a shit about E3, and then Big Steve told me about all the cool <laughs> shit that came out in video games that made me you know chub a little bit. So you should listen to Pixelated Radio. Uh, that's my podcast with Mark. And Corey and Rich, and we talk about video games and a lot of pop culture stuff, too. Also, I want to give a shout-out to my buddy Evan and his podcast, The Main Event, where it's a beer review podcast, and they talk about wrestling. And I'm going to be on that at some point in the future, it looks like. And even though I don't drink much beer, they told me they'd get me a fruity beer, and we would test it out. And also... 
I want to make an announcement about uh, my Extra Life Marathon coming up on November 7th at noon. Uh, Big Steven's supposed to come down uh, to good old Kentucky, and we're going to do a 25-hour gaming marathon. And I'm hoping these two chuckleheads will, will jump in and also help us raise money for that as well. So we're going to play online. We're going to stream it all online as much as we can. Uh, I'm hoping that, like I said, Sean can join and Corey can join and everybody else can join in the Pixelated Radio Network. We're going to try to get some prizes, some artwork from my friend Will. He said he would donate. And uh, Mark said he would probably donate some stuff. And who knows, maybe I will even donate some stuff. So yeah. uh, When is that again? November? That's November 7th. Cool. I'll throw some stuff in, so too. So we're... We're uh, we're getting away from the the Thanksgiving week, so you know we give, I got like a two week buffer in there between then and Thanksgiving, so that way people might have a little bit of money and instead of trying to wait for Black Friday. We raised almost eight hundred dollars last year, and it was literally three days of planning. So we're really hoping to to at least get a thousand this year. That's what I'm hoping for. Nice, uh, probably more than that if we can get more people to do it. So I'm really excited about this. So, uh, you know, I had a good time doing it last year, and I didn't even have that much help last year. Um, I was pretty much through the the night hours by myself, and that's when I finally, after 18 hours, had to give up. So now, if i got Steven here with me, we can take quick naps in between and and jar ourselves, uh, jar up some of that energy and and really go go the distance with this. So I'm hoping that we get a good turnout this year. Hell yeah, that'll be good. That'll be really good. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll jump in there with you too and just uh, knock this puppy out, man. Uh, also, I want to uh, say listen to Sports Car Unleashed with Rich. We're gonna unleash his cars to their full potential. All right. So anyway, uh, I guess that's probably going to be it. That is really bizarre, folks. I think I lost the call here. It looks like uh, Skype just crashed. So with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time around. Sean just texted me, sign off for me. I lost the call. All right, cool. So Sean's going to go ahead and go away, and me and Preston are going to sit here and talk about... Well, what the fuck are we going to talk about? Nothing. We're going to go We're going to. Go too. So everybody... Good night, everybody. Have a good night. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. You have two ways. One, email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we have that set up too. Dial us at 707-523-4263. Again, that's 707-523-4263. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. it's the podcast that never ends yeah it just goes on and on again yeah yeah it just wants to be stopped by you yeah